Welcome to the Hidden Why podcast, episode 1084. This is my interview with Daniel Willingham, and we're discussing his book, Outsmart Your Brain. Enjoy. Hello, Daniel. Welcome to the Hidden Why podcast. Great to have you here. Thank you so much. Lovely to be here. Whereabouts are you in the world? I am in central Virginia on the east coast of the US. We've, okay. We're getting lots of smoke from Canadian wildfires this afternoon. Ah, right. So the fires are Sorry happening. To report. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry to report. I, I, we just got a notification that our air quality is dangerous. So, staying indoors. Right. Okay. Yeah. This was similar last year, was it? Or was it a few years back now? Yeah. Or no. This fun. is this is new to uh, at least my part of the world. Okay. Yeah. I'm sorry to hear. Yeah. Um. So Virginia and your professor of psychology at the University of Virginia is that right? That's correct. Yeah. Okay, tell us a little bit about your history there. You've been doing this for a while, I believe. I have. Um, I've been at the university almost my whole uh, academic career. I got my PhD in 1990, came here in 1992. But when I got here in 1992, I was very much a basic researcher and was doing pretty technical work on learning and memory, sort of at the intersection of cognitive psychology and neuroscience. And it was in 2002, roughly, that I became interested in education and applications of what we know about how the mind and brain work. Um, And my career really shifted focus, and I started doing much more uh, translation work, trying to bring to educators and to the broader public what we know about uh, how the brain works to... uh, put it to good use in in uh, offices and schools. But particularly about how the brain works, but how the brain learns, is that sort of more? Uh, learning is de- learning is definitely a focus, but, um, you know, attention and reading and uh, but most of the reading. thought process. Yeah, most of the th- decision making, problem solving, all of those things have been of interest to me. It's a fairly broad. How does one get interested in that that particular topic or area is it is it something from your background that you had trouble with yourself or uh well i mean i think everybody feels like they can improve right um hmm. it was not it was not especially interesting to me from um from that perspective i i'd always been a generalist and was actually um before i got interested in application i was the author of an introductory textbook so you know necessarily had sort of a broad perspective um, and and got interested in application really by accident. I was invited to give a talk to a bunch of teachers, and I rashly agreed because I was flattered to be asked. Uh, and then realized I I had to give this talk even though I didn't really know anything that I yeah. thought would be helpful to teachers. Um, and so went and told talked to them about some content that I thought was pretty elementary. I mean, it's stuff that. I'd been telling sophomores here at the university in sort of the first course you would take about how learning works. And this was uh, very surprising and interesting to teachers. And that really changed my career. I realized that my field had, my field had done an awful job of uh, publicizing what we know to people who could use it. So I, I thought that um, that would be useful work for me to take on. I'm interested in how you can study the brain and how it works and then apply that in a practical sense to the field of mm-hmm. education. 
Yeah, I mean, well, you know, the uh, it it's tricky uh, because there is uh, the la the laboratory is not the same as uh, everyday life. The, oh. the whole right, the whole hmm. purpose of doing work in a laboratory is that you're trying to control all of the extraneous variables, right? So you're if I'm studying learning, I don't want uh, motivation to be an issue. So I'll pay subjects. And if I want to study learning, I don't want attention and distraction to be an issue. So I'm going to put you in a soundproof room so that you can't be distracted. Uh, but of course, if you're in a classroom or you're at work, you can be distracted. Uh, there's no telling what's going to happen, right? Mm. So that that's where the uh, the challenge comes in trying to translate basic science to uh, applied settings. Right. So where do we start with learning and what have you found? I mean, I've probably it's probably shifted quite a bit too since you first started with, mm -hmm. with technology now and, and that, you know, device in our hands as far right. as our attention is concerned and ability to learn uh, and perhaps how the way we learn has maybe shifted too or I don't know, has it? Um, but where do you start with learning and studying the brain and then helping educators improve that for their students? Yeah. I think the the uh, most important really general principle to keep in mind, and this is sort of um, uh, the the reason I titled my book, Outsmart Your Brain, mm. uh, the reason that we have difficulty learning or, um, yeah, uh, le let's leave it at that. The reason we have difficulty learning <clears throat> um, is that the natural inclination of what the way you would tackle a learning task is to do things that feel pretty easy, but also feel like they're effective. Uh, and what we've, what psychological researchers have found is that those strategies tend not to be very effective. Uh, your brain sort of fools you into thinking that particular learning activities are more effective than they really are. Uh, so I'll give you an example. If you ask students how they study, how they prepare for an examination, by far the most common answer is, well, I read over my textbook and I read over my notes. So they sort of sit with their materials open and they read the content over and over again. And this has exactly the qualities that I just described. It's not hard to do, right? You can, I mean, reading isn't very hard. Uh, and it feels like it's effective because as you're, reading the content over and over again, it becomes more and more familiar. But here's where the problem is. There, this is this is actually a, a, a bad strategy. Reading over your notes in textbook is a bad strategy in two different right. ways. Okay. One is that it's not really very effective for memory. It's not very good for memory because, mm. I mean, we've all had the experience of Read, you know, reading something, but really your eyes are just passing over the words. So you get to the bottom of a page and you realize I've been thinking about something else entirely. Uh, and if you want to remember things, you need to really be paying attention and thinking deeply about the content. So reading things over could be okay if you're actually thinking, but it's not a technique that guarantees mm. you're really going to be thinking deeply. Mm. But it, reading things over has the second bad property, which is it feels like it's working because as you're reading it over, the content becomes more and more familiar. Right. But familiarity is not the same thing as the type of memory you need to build 
to actually have command of the content and be able to do well on an exam. Yeah. Right. Familiarity, the way psychologists use the term, is just the same way you use it in everyday conversation. When something's familiar, that means like just like if you see someone on the street and you say that person looks familiar, what you mean is I know I've seen them before, but I can't tell you anything else about them. So reading stuff over makes things, makes the content seem more and more familiar. You're like, oh yeah, this is easy. I know I've got this, but in yeah. fact, you may not really uh, be committing it to memory. Right. I never liked reading. Um, and I know you, <laughs> you teach a lot of people on how to become a better reader too. Um, That's also been an interest. Yeah. But that makes a lot of sense. I mean, reading over things um, easy. I mean, you say it's, you know, most people find it easy just to read. Um, I never really did. I did not that I didn't find it easy. I just found it boring too. Um, mm -hmm. but how then do we take that, that into a practical sense? Like, is it about reading and then writing or reading and then talking about the topic? What do we do to yeah. enhance that memory? Yes. Yeah. So there, there are two things you want to do. One, um, one is you want to engage in activities that will really get you thinking about the content because, a very important principle of memory is that memory loves meaning. If you're thinking about what things mean, you're much more likely be, to be able to recall them the next day. Memory is not at all sensitive to whether or not you want to remember things. So think about the last time you saw a movie. If someone asks you the next day, oh, you saw that movie, I'm wondering about that. What's it about? You would never say like, well, I don't know. I don't remember now. I didn't study it. You know, I just watched it, right? You, the memory sort of comes along for free. And the reason you remember a movie so well is that it's, it's not only because you're paying attention to it, but this is meaningful content. It all hangs together. And so that's the property of memory that you want to put to work. Is it because it's also to visual? Something to memory. The fact that it's visual is not so important. No. I mean, if no, if someone told, well, I mean, there, there are ways. Because in if which, you look at it, reading yeah. a book and going, okay, well, I'm reading that book or watching a movie, certainly for me, I think I would remember the movie more so than, you know, what I'd get from the book. And perhaps that's just because I'm a terrible reader. I'm not sure, but. So this, get, this gets uh, complicated. There are right. instances where visual content is going to be better remembered than verbal content. Um, I think when you're comparing a movie and a book, it's less likely that it's the visual aspect of it. It's more likely that it's more engaging for you and you're you're paying closer attention to it. Right. Um, it's also the case that movies are such big budget items that no movie makes it to your screen without being vetted by an enormous number of people and reshot and re-edited if it needs to be to ensure that it's very engaging. And that's mm -hmm. not true of books, right? Publishers are much more in the mode of they just throw a million books out there and hope that a few of them stick. It's video games and, and movies where they really vet them first to be sure they're going to be a hit because they're so expensive to produce. But you talk uh, one one tip, you know, attention you, you mentioned there as well. Is, is that a, a key player in this too? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that this is an instance where your intuition about learning is absolutely right and verified by tons of experimental research. If you're not paying attention to something, it's just game over for memory. Uh, and in fact, memory is so sensitive to attention that you will remember uh, not an entire experience. You will remember the features of the experience that you pay attention to. 
So in some really uh, clever experiments on this, researchers asked subjects to, they showed them sentences on a screen and they said, just one of the words in the sentence is gonna be capitalized. And we want you to remember just that word. The sentence is there, you can read it or not. We don't really care. We thought it might help you remember. So for example, one of the words was piano. And some of the time the sentence would bias you to think of an aspect of a piano that you wouldn't normally think of. So it would say, for example, the moving men struggled to get the piano up the stairs. And then other people saw sentences that made you think about an aspect of piano that's much more typical, like the, the musician played the piano with a beautiful lush sound. So when I get you to think of a piano as being something heavy, that and that particular thing, not piano in general, but the fact that pianos are heavy, that's what gets stored in your mind. So it's true that attention is really important for uh, memory, but the effect of attention is even more particular than we would guess it would be. Attention homes in on particular aspects of experience, and that's what you end up remembering. So that example you just gave, was that because it was not typical and that's why it grabbed our attention more so? Uh, no, because you get, it, no, if you get it in, you, know, you get the same sort of effect when it's the typical right, uh, meaning of piano, the particular feat. Yeah. The particular feature of piano. And I mean, to be sure, when you say a sentence like, um, you know, the removing men struggle to get the, it's not like people say like, what do you mean, sir? Like that doesn't make any, right. I mean, it's, it's an unusual aspect of uh, piano, but it's not that unusual that it's going to make people sort of do a double take and uh, think so hard about it. So the effect of those two examples is, is the same, the memory. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That attention, just, just uh, an example of how important attention is. And also that the effect of attention on memory is not just to ensure that things get into memory, but what you pay attention to is very narrowly what ends up in memory. How do so we improve again, to, just we improve to, just that? To get, yeah, yeah, just to get, to get back to the, your original question, which was like, okay, so reading over content is not a good way to remember. What is a good way to remember? Uh, and so the first thing I said was memory is is uh, very sensitive to meaning. And so you want to be thinking about meaning. You raise the question of attention. Without a doubt, you, uh, attention is going to be a very important part of that. And then the other thing I would mention that is less intuitive is that probing memory, trying to remember things, turns out to be a good way to cement things into memory. So mm -hmm. content that's in there, like you've read it before, you kind of know it, and you're trying to really cement it and make sure that you've got it. Uh, probing memory, trying to remember that content turns out to be a really good way to, mm -hmm. the best way actually, better than restudying uh, to affix that that fragile memory. Yes, gotcha. So is that is that just through uh, reading, for example, and then doing some like a, a quiz on on what you've read? Exactly. Doing a quiz is a really easy way to structure it. The very old school method of preparing flashcards, same principle as at work there. That can be effective as well. What are you finding the biggest, you know, part of your research and, and the biggest hurdle in education at the moment 
Um, and I, I'm just going back to to attention, really. Mm. And it may, may not be attention, but what what do you find the biggest issues are now with this this idea of education and, and memory and learning? I think one of the th- this takes us to the um, a, a slightly different topic, which is curriculum. Mm. Uh, and I think one of the big problems is that there's not been enough attention paid to making the curriculum really systematic. One of the most important things about memory is that I just said memory is very uh, uh, affected by meaning. If you understand what things mean, you will remember them better. Well, then that what that indicates is if I'm a teacher, I want to be sure that the new content that I'm uh, trying to teach my students is meaningful to them. They should actually understand most of it. And then the the there should be just some bit that's a little bit of a reach for them. That's the ideal from the perspective of memory. Uh, but that requires sequencing the curriculum in a way that's very systematic, very careful, so that, uh, again, if I'm a teacher and I've got 25 students in front of me, they, they don't have 25 different backgrounds in terms of what they know. They've all sort of come to me with um, a similar level of knowledge, which I am aware of, so that I can uh, teach them sort of the next step in the sequence and they'll have the maximum benefit. From a cognitive perspective, that would be uh, a really important thing to do, and it's not done in most places. Yeah. I mean, how do you systemize it to make it engaging for, you know, a bunch of people? Um, and I think that's probably the most challenge with with education is, you know, you're, you're making it very broad uh, for a whole different range of personalities and levels of experience. I, I think that's right. And I mean, I think the 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 levels of experience is something that you can address. I mean, you're always going to have students who, well, you know, I learned about this at home, and so I'm already familiar with this. Um, but not that often. Uh, I, I think the bigger problem is if the curriculum is sort of haphazard, and depending on which teacher they had last year, and, you know, oftentimes which school they attended, because kids move a lot, um, it's very unpredictable what students know or don't know. And that makes the teacher's job just that much harder. Mm. But then how do you make it engaging? Like if you don't have interest in a particular topic, then you've lost the attention immediately. Well, um, I, that that's a problem, but it's also the case that if, uh, I, I mean, I think that's no, not a bigger problem mm. uh, when you've got a systematic curriculum compared to when you've got one that's haphazard. I suppose if you if you weren't concerned about exactly what was covered, you could just drop things if students weren't interested. Um, I always get a little leery of that uh, if um, sort of putting students in the driver's seat when it comes to what they ought to learn. I think teachers have the longer view and more experience and they, uh, they're they better judges of what is in students' long-term interest to know, uh, better judges than students themselves are. Mm. Do you, How do you um, focus on attention now with um, technology being, uh, you know, distracting our attention or taking our attention away? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, this has been very controversial. And and I think as a 
topic of research, it's a very difficult research problem. It's it's sort of comparable to figuring out that cigarette smoke cancer uh, cause smoking cause smoking causes cancer, because you have this uh, suspicion that there is a very long term consequence for something that in the short term maybe doesn't have such terrible consequences, mm. and you can't do a proper experiment. You can't you know take. 20 kids and say, all right, 10 of you are not going to be exposed to digital devices at all for the next 10 years. And 10 of you are going to make sure that you do it for at least 30 hours a week. And then we'll all meet in 10 years and see what's happened. Uh, so instead, you're left to rely on much less powerful methods. Um, that said, I'll say that the uh, this is very much a guess. Uh, and I think anybody who talks about the long-term consequences of uh, electronics on attention is at this point guessing. We don't have the data. Most cognitive psychologists make the guess that it's not really affecting your ability to pay attention because attention is, even though the brain is plastic and is open to experience, there are limits to how much the brain is likely to change. There's a basic architecture of the brain uh -huh. that can't be changed that much. And attention is so central to so much of our thinking uh, that if there were something that could really uh, damage your ability to pay attention, you would see consequences throughout this. Basically, every you know, people would be stupid. People wouldn't be able to read. They wouldn't be able to solve problems, do math, any of it. Um, I think what an alternative hypothesis that makes sense to me is that uh, electronics may not have uh, affected our ability to pay attention, but it may have affected our desire to pay attention. It may have lowered our threshold for what we consider boring, because what digital platforms mm -hmm. have in common <clears throat> is they make it very easy to access. If you're bored, they make it very easy to make something else happen. Mm. You know, I, th I think about when I was a kid, um, you, t I, I really think kids, uh, you know, from my generation, like you, you had to have a certain tolerance for boredom because there just wasn't that many other things to do. I mean, you know, even, even, uh, television, which was the big mind numbing waste of time that we had, um, there were only four channels. And so a lot of times if you decided you were going to watch TV, like you still ended up with nothing on that you really wanted to watch. And I think what, kids do learn a lesson from that, believe it or not. You learn mm. that sometimes things are a little boring for a while, but if you stick with it, then you discover, oh, this is a little more interesting than I thought it was. It, it teaches a certain patience. Yeah. And yeah. if you think about the absolute opposite of that is TikTok, which is like, if a video is not interesting in the first second or two, then I can, with very little effort on my part, I can make something else happen. And so this sort of feeds into the idea that being bored is not natural. No. So when we talk about what what uh, digital entertainment has done to attention, I don't think that I think it's unlikely that it has really shortened our span of attention, but I think it has affected what we are willing to pay attention to. Right. Well explained. Yeah. And I couldn't agree more. Now, it's not that we can't pay attention. It's just that we are too impatient to. Uh, like reading, for example. I mean, how many people read books anymore? Yeah, and I've yeah, seen, no, I... I've seen, you know, people yeah. that have become so used to their their device that they've 
just don't read it anymore. And if you go to a resort, I actually observed this when I went away on holidays last year. I went to a resort and there was no one reading by the pool, you know. Yeah. And typically, you'd always see people with books on, on these resorts, you know, ten years, twenty years ago. Absolutely, and and airplanes, same thing. Everybody, <clears throat> you know, at least half of the people would be reading, yeah. uh, and now everyone's either scrolling or you know watching a movie. And something visual too, like a movie or yep. you know something scrolling yep. rather than just reading. Absolutely, yeah. Do you see where reading is going? Do you think we'll be still reading going forward, or will we be I using do. more voice and and uh, and visual? Sort of? I think was I think people will still read. I mean, I th- you know audio books have become in uh, uh, obviously an, a, a larger and larger part of the market. Um, there are advantages and disadvantages from the user's perspective for mm. to audiobooks. You know, a, a bad narrator can really ruin your your experience. Yeah. Um, but on the positive side, you know, you can audiobooks bring the a read something like a reading experience where you couldn't otherwise have when you can be in the car, you can be mopping your kitchen floor, and you can be, you know, listening to a book. But I think the key thing is that. These these literary experiences, and I include audiobooks in that, um, they're different than the type of pleasure you get from watching videos on TikTok or or um, you know any other type of pleasure. It's a different type of pleasure. Mm. And this is a this is a common theory. It's called the displacement hypothesis that when a new technology emerges um, and it it sort of comes into our life, what it does is it displaces whatever it was most similar to. So you saw that in the early studies when t- television first made its appearance. This is when lots of magazines that offered light fiction went under. Collier's Magazine, Saturday Evening Post. The main thing that people bought them for was light short stories, light fiction. And people thought of television, consciously or not, television seemed like a suitable substitute for that. Uh, newspapers were unaffected because people viewed television news as lightweight and not really a, a play, the place to get your news. Uh, and so they newspaper subscriptions didn't uh, suffer at all. So mm. I think uh, this is so this is an example of the displacement hypothesis. TV comes in, it displaces what people perceive it to be similar to. And I think um, for that reason, I think uh, people will continue to read because the kinds of things that are offered in uh, on digital platforms aren't seen as a suitable substitute for the experience of reading. And does that go back to our attention then as well? Because I think, you know, like you said, you can listen to an audio book while you're mopping the floor um, or you could watch TV and it can sort of be a background noise almost. Whereas if you're right. reading... Um, generally, I find when I'm reading anyway, my attention is more honed in. Now, if I'm listening to an audio book while I'm mopping the floor, I will miss bits. I won't yeah. be fully attentive to it. That's um, right. Whereas if I'm doing something like, uh, you know, jumping on the, the motorbike, delivering flies or something like that, saying that's a bit more consistent and, and focused, I suppose, and listening to an audio book, I'll be more attentive to it. So yeah, yeah, and there there are studies on this, and your your introspection about your uh, attention process is exactly what researchers find, uh, and what they find also is that people are are aware of this, and they're selective about what they what they choose to listen to when they're mopping the floor. They sort of yeah. know like this is not the time. If there's something that 
you know, I think is, oh, this would be a good thing for me to read professionally. I really want to make sure I learn from this. Then you probably won't do it while you're mopping the floor. You know, you'll you'll buy the physical book and so that you can peruse it. And you're much more likely to um, listen to something that is, you know, a novel that you're you're not, you know, you're happy to listen to, but you're not going to analyze or anything. Yeah, I listened to someone yesterday on a podcast, and they said, you know, when when they're lifting weights, for example, um, they can't have an audio book on because they won't be paying attention. They need something else happening because they're fully right. focused when it's if they're on their, their bike, they can listen to an audio book. So depending right. on, on, and, the, on and whereas I, when I lift weights, absolutely can listen to an audio book because right. I'm not very serious when it comes to weights. I don't need to focus. So how do we outsmart the brain then going back to your book, which is um, on Amazon, I'll stick a link in the show notes, outsmart your brain while learning is hard and how you can make it easier. Um, because I mean, the topics we've just covered now is probably all relevant to that. Yeah. Um, but everyone wants to be able to learn easily. Yeah. So, it, I mean, it does depend a little bit on the topic. And we've, we've talked a little bit about how to commit things to memory that you, you know, you, you shouldn't do what your sort of um, uh, your, your first inclination would be to read things over. And that really covers two processes. Uh, one is how to commit things to memory. And the second is how to know when you know something. Uh, and I mentioned that you're going to rely on this feeling of familiarity to tell you, oh, actually, this is, you know, this is old stuff. Yeah, I know this. Uh, and that sort of hints at, well, actually, the real way to know whether or not you know something is to not have the content in front of you and see whether or not you can, you know, reproduce it from memory. Mm. Um, so those are two really important parts of uh of learning how to get things into memory and then how to judge whether or not you're uh, uh, whether or not you've actually committed something to memory. Uh, another thing that might be interesting for your audience is uh, when they're reading how to how to read content to be to get the most out of it. Uh, and the mistake there again in terms of outsmarting your brain, we're so used to reading, uh, but we tend to read everything. Uh, in the way we first learn to read, which is you just sort of sit down and read. And I, I have to say, when I talk to my students, like, how do you how do you handle the reading for my course, for example? They're puzzled. They say, like, well, what do you mean, how do you read? Like, you sit down and you start reading. Uh, and that's fine if you're mm -hmm. reading something where the author has really made an effort to sort of come to you. It's a little bit like a movie that they're very concerned about being interesting. They know that you can drop this if you're not interested. Um, but if you're reading something that is, you know, it's something for work, it's a little bit technical, it's something that you're hoping to learn from, you're probably reading something written by someone who's an expert in their field, but not necessarily an expert in entertaining you and knowing how to make it interesting. And so you need to be more strategic when you're doing that type of reading for learning rather than reading for uh, pleasure. So mm. the most important things are there are two things that I would recommend to your listeners. One is go in with a plan. Don't just sit back and start reading. Think to yourself, what is it I'm trying to get out of this? What specific questions am I hoping are going to be answered by the time I'm done with this particular chapter? And if you need to look at the headings and the subheadings in the chapter, and that will help you figure out not only how it's organized, but also 
you know, what it is, you know, make you come up with a better guess about what you're likely to right. learn from this, from this chapter. Uh, there's lots of research showing that you get different things out of a reading when you have different expectations. So knowing what your goal is makes sense. Then the second thing is you want to be reading and really thinking about meaning, but you can't just say to yourself, okay, here I go. I'm going to really pay attention here. I'm going to, your brain just doesn't respond to the command, think about meaning, yeah. but it works much better if you have a concrete task to complete and completing that task requires thinking about meaning. So by looking at the chapter in advance and thinking, here's what I, here are the questions that I hope to answer. As you're reading, you can be looking for the answers to those questions. You can also be evaluating, was I really asking the best questions? Is that in fact what this chapter is about? Uh, and following that procedure will really help you sort of put together all the all the pieces uh, of the chapter and figure out what the big picture meaning is. Mm, that makes a lot of sense. So practical takeaways like that found in your book, Daniel? Oh, absolutely. Abs that, that's just the beginning. Absolutely. That's <laughs> just the beginning. <laughs> yeah. Well, so, mate, pleasure having you on today. And thanks for the um, the uh, discussions. Um, yeah, very interesting uh, topic. And I'm sure a lot of people listening will find it uh, interesting too. So guys, you can pick up a copy of his book. I'll stick a link in the show notes there as well. Um, outsmart your brain. Uh, Daniel, thank you for coming on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been fun. Cheers, guys. Check it out at thehiddenwhy.com. Until next time, peace, passion, and purpose. Thanks, guys, for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed what you heard. I hope you love what you're hearing. If you like this episode, guys, or any of the episodes that you're listening to here at The Hidden Why, please do me a favor by sharing it. You can share it with your families. You can share it with your loved ones. You can do that by using your favorite social media channels using the icons on the platform that you're listening to The Hidden Why podcast. Also, guys, if you're a fan of the show, please connect with me. Connect with me at thehiddenwide.com. I love to hear from you. I love to converse with the people that listen to this show to find out what they enjoy, what they don't enjoy, and perhaps if they have any questions or feedback for the show as well. You can stay up to date with all that I'm releasing here, guys. I do a solo show every Monday, a three-minute thought every Thursday. I do two interviews a week on a Wednesday and a Saturday, and a book review every Friday. You can stay up to date with all that by subscribing to my newsletter at thehiddenwire.com. Just enter your email address there. And also subscribing to the podcast on the platform that you choose to listen to your podcast. You can also support the show, guys, by using the Amazon links at thehiddenwire.com. So if you like books, you can get all the books that I review there um, and anything else, really, that you like to purchase through Amazon. So use that link. It helps support the show. And we've also got a deal with Audible, guys. Audible is a fantastic way to listen to all your favorite books. We've got a deal with them so you can get two free books when you subscribe or, yeah, subscribe to a 30-day free trial. So check that out, again, at thehiddenwire.com. Guys, that's it from me. You know what to do. Go out there. Breathe more passion into every single moment. Do everything with greater purpose and in doing so you will discover your hidden why this is the hidden why my name is lee martin Lutzi. until next time peace passion and purpose see you soon